You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long. We are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, I am here once again with Lucian Greaves, the co-founder and spokesperson of the Satanic Temple. But before we get to that, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and they keep me from doing unspeakably disgusting things on the streets to fund my crippling content creation addiction. So for this week, I have to thank Kane Nevermore, Scott Denom, Ven Winter, and Kelly. Thank you so much. I truly could not do this without you. And for listeners who want to join their number, just go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For a dollar a month or $5 a month, you get extra content every single week. All right, Lucian, welcome back. Great to be on. So before we get into it, we just had our first Satan Con in Arizona. I was not there. I will try to be there at the next one. But how was it? How did it go? By all accounts, it went very well. And uh, I know there's more coverage coming still. There were people putting together fuller mini documentary style type reports from it. I mean, outside of the TST camp, but I have. Oh, interesting. You know, high hopes that they'll they'll make uh, a quality product. One can hope. But next year, yeah, next year, uh, I assume we'll have less concern regarding COVID and it'll be our 10 year anniversary. So oh, that should right. be lit. I, are you trying to fit in with the kids? Yeah, He's, as the kids would say. Uh, do lit. the kids even say lit anymore? I feel like that was very three years ago or four years ago. I don't I don't All even right. know. Well, I'm catching up. When, when, did, <laughs> when did the Catholic Church pardon Galileo? I'm doing pretty good. Absolutely. Fair enough. Yeah, so as usual, whenever you come on, I put out some feelers on Twitter and my Discord to see what people might want us to talk about. And... We did get a question that I thought was really, really interesting, which is, oh, hold on. Where where the fuck did it go? Not that you only got one question. No, I got, got one that you thought was interesting. Precisely. So, no, I get way too many questions whenever you come on and it's always stupid shit. So hold on. <laughs> let me <laughs> let me find one. There's there have been some really it, it's always how has Satan Mingle made an impact in his life? How has Satan Mingle? Yes, made an impact on your life. Uh, let's see here. Why did the guy with the dinosaur claw rip that lady's tit off? Oh, I know what that's about. Uh, let's see. Ask him if he's wearing pants. Are you wearing pants, Lucian? You don't pants, don't, don't answer. are wearing me. Okay, good. Uh, what's your favorite type of cookie? No, let's get back to the dinosaur ripping. The okay, okay, let's talk about let's talk about that, the dinosaur. It's a reference to last night's movie nights massacre in Dinosaur Valley. And uh, okay, clearly so for, the for dinosaur people... only ripped open half her tit so that another <laughs> bare-breasted woman could suck the wound. I mean, of course, why not? It was. It's a good movie. It's it sounds good. like it. Um, <laughs> there, so... there wasn't any. There wasn't actually any dinosaurs to be seen either. <laughs> and it kept kind of 
going back and forth. It couldn't decide whether it wanted to be this white knuckled tense escape from Amazonian cannibal movie, right. or if it just wanted to be softcore porn. So it kind of did the did both of them. Did so both. they'd be on the run from cannibals, and then they would just hit the ground and start have, making out with boobs. Have you heard of or watched the movie A Nymphomaniac in Dinosaur Hell? No, it sounds like a good movie. Though, <laughs> it so. sounds it sounds right up your alley. For people <laughs> who are who are completely lost, uh, you have a regular movie night every Wednesday night, and it's a lot of fun. I have popped in there every now and then. Yeah, um, tri- triple feature every time. And I gotta say, after a couple solid years of doing it, we're still not. <laughs> we, I still feel like I haven't scratched the surface of the archive of bad movies. Absolutely. It's endless. All right. So now that we've gotten through some of the uh, stupid questions, not that they're stupid. I mean, I'm I'm glad that people love you enough to just regale my Twitter feed with lots of questions. So you're not giving those questions enough credit. Fair. But there is one question that I thought that we could spend some time on, which is from Ilium Shadows, and they say, I was curious to find out if at all his interest and research into the process church influenced how he approached the development of TST, if there was anything he took inspiration from. After watching the process doc on TST TV, I was curious. So perhaps before we answer that question, you could say some about what the process church of the final judgment was. Well... My interest in the process really came from my earlier interest in the satanic panic and trying to figure out why people believe these crazy things. And if you started exploring the notions that were put forward related to the satanic panic, that there were these cults operating in silence all throughout society and trying to undermine everything that we hold dear to our Christian morals in the United States and beyond, the process was kind of isolated as this satanic cult that was responsible for it all by some of the conspiracy theorists. And you can see that narrative come up again in the um, Sons of Sam documentary uh, that came out recently on Netflix. You know, to to be fair, I should mention I gave... uh, some shit publicly to the director of that documentary who did reach out to me and say that I got the wrong message from the documentary that the documentary wasn't. I don't know how you got the wrong message because that's also the message that I got. (laughs) Right. Right. But I, I I think it was very inept at doing anything that would have attempted to not give that message. Yeah. But I, I don't doubt that the director, um, I honestly feel like he was just kind of naive as to how the audience would receive it and thought that okay. it was good enough to put the idea out there and people would, you know, have have a sense that uh, that this was uh, the story of a conspiracy theorist going too far down a rabbit hole or and, whatever. And the and the idea that we're discussing is that the process church of the final judgment, which was this new religious movement in the 60s, had a hand in like the uh, son of Sam murders. I've also seen them linked to the Manson murders. I've seen them linked to all kinds of 
terrible things that happened during that period of time. And so all of it was uh, was not true. They they were wrongly linked. And well, they, as far they had as I the know. aesthetic and that really helped uh, create uh, this this pattern of illusion around them that they were responsible for these uh, these mythic crimes that we could never find any evidence for, but it could they could at least point to a cult in the process very much was a cult. And the idea that uh, they did all kinds of horrific things and that they were Satanists and even calling them Satanists is uh, kind of an abuse of the term because they certainly wouldn't have considered themselves to be Satanists, though they did venerate Christ and Satan as opposing opposites. And they had this idea of the reconciliation of the opposites that transcended its component parts kind of thing. And you might see shades of that already in descriptions of the Baphomet monument when we started putting that together. And as for the question of how the the process church inspired the satanic temple, I would say earlier on in it inspired the satanic temple in similar ways that groups like the church of Satan inspired the satanic temple, which is that we could see what we felt they had done wrong and did not want to repeat those things. And uh, I mean, that's not even to, uh, to throw shade as the lit kids might say uh, at the, <laughs> at the, the, the process or the church of Satan. But, uh, the, the process, like I said, was very much a cult. And when I say that, I mean, I know that pejorative term is thrown at any religious group that's ever started, including us, without thought, just because it sounds good. And it sounds like the proper criticism to put towards a religious organization that you don't like. But the process inner circle very much did uh, dictate the minutiae of everybody's lives within it you know and they even paired people up sexually and had these bizarre kinds of episodes where they would you know do do these things that were they're very very much micromanaging each other's lives and living uh very much in a communal setting amongst one another but like i said their belief system was far more complicated than this idea that they were merely satanists and that they uh not to say merely Satanists, but but uh, they they had a, a, a more complex kind of theology with many many deities. They had Christ, Satan, Lucifer, and Jehovah, and the the core idea was this idea of transcending these conflicts and the reconciliation of opposites. But they kind of changed shape over time. They changed ideas over time. They never really kind of settled on one thing. The organizational structure of the process changed throughout time. And before they kind of fell apart, they were a bit of an embarrassment sending uh, cult members out onto the street to beg for donations and try to sell magazines and things like that. Definitely not something we want to emulate. After they uh, disbanded, nobody really wanted to own up to having ownership of the process. So the conspiracy theorists were free to say what they will. You know, uh, the satanic temple 
is an existing organization right now. I think if we if we disbanded, people would say you know so many more horrific things about us for feeling that nobody would nobody would try to correct them at least not in in the courts. You know, and that's kind of what happened to the the process. It was fair game to say whatever you wanted about any of them because uh, I, I think it's kind of fair to say that a lot of them somewhat went into hiding over it because there was uh, such a panic at the time about the idea of satanic cults and things like that. So many of them just wanted to be left alone. They were blamed for the Manson murders by conspiracy theorists as well. And this came about because members of the process did visit Charles Manson in prison. And despite what the conspiracy theorists say, they try to make it sound like uh, they visited Manson, that the the essence of the conversation is unknown or that they were otherwise giving him instruction or that they had prior affiliation with him. There's no evidence of that. Uh, the process very much openly went there to interview him for a magazine they were doing. And if you can do that at the time, why wouldn't you, right? I mean, of uh, course. This was, yeah, this was very much dominant in the news and they felt that there was a perspective to get straight from the horse's mouth. So when you see these conspiracy theorists acting like this is something they try to conceal, it's not like that at all. The process themselves intentionally published this, this fact. And I have copies of their old magazines. I have the little article that they wrote up after visiting Charles Manson, things like that. So their intention for be their intentions for being there aren't unknown. So that being, you know, put forward as like this missing link to prove the connection between the process and Charles Manson is fairly ludicrous. And there's no evidence that they were ever involved in any of these crimes that anybody say that they're involved in, but still nobody really wanted to talk, talk about it. So at some point I started tracking down former members of the process church to try to get an idea of their actual history. Cause very little, had been written about who they really were and miles of, you know, reams of text had been written elaborating these bizarre conspiracy theories. And part of that was the process's own fault. They didn't do much to uh, archive their information. And in fact, when they disbanded, they were supposed to uh, burn their, their, the books they had for their priests and things like that. We have a copy of one though at the, uh, at our headquarters in Salem. Did uh, so they had a so they had a clergy. They had a priesthood. Oh yeah, yeah. They okay. they had a priesthood and they had they had chapters throughout uh, the United States and and beyond. They originated from the United Kingdom in London, and they started as a schism group from the Church of Scientology. Nice. Um, the Robert de Grimston and his wife Marianne Moore. They met as auditors within the Church of Scientology, and ironically, it was the hierarchical structure, uh, oppressive hierarchical structure of the Church of Scientology that they wanted to leave to do something that they felt liberated their membership more to act according to their own will. And I say ironically because they became a cult that did micromanage other people's other people's lives. So... They started out as this kind of psychotherapy cult, as uh, uh, the sociologist William Bainbridge called them. D- didn't they call themselves a deviant psychotherapy cult? They didn't call themselves that. William okay. Bainbridge. Okay. William Bainbridge was a uh, was a sociologist who became a member of the process 
church to to write about them. And he ended up being a roommate to uh, Robert de Grimston for a time after after uh, he's he split with Marianne Moore and in and the process started to kind of fall apart. But he he wrote a book called uh, Satan's Power is something like a history of a deviant psychotherapy cult. Oh, that's and, where that comes from. OK. Yeah. But in order to try to maintain that liberation, they did it in the psychotherapeutic context where they had they were still using e-meters in the way that Scientology does. And Scientology, they do these auditing sessions where they have what are essentially these lie detectors where they have the metal cans that uh, that uh, measure, you know, the electromagnetic pulses or waves yeah, or charge. Your or psychophysiological whatever. response, supposedly. Right. But how psychophysiological that is, is unclear when you actually play around with a uh, e-meter. Because the dial just floats around like the, the dial will just drift. We have an e-meter in our headquarters and I played with it and I thought there's no way that you can actually get a reading on somebody's state of mind from this because I've noticed that if you squeeze it a little harder the needle jumps and it, uh, you, you can, it doesn't take much you know if there you, are there are ex-scientologists who still swear by it I mean there are, there are Scientologists who have completely disavowed Scientology L. Ron Hubbard they say Scientology is a destructive cult but they're like but auditing is legit and they still live for it and I know I still yeah. hold, hold out some thought that maybe I'm you know maybe I could find a way to use it better Me too. That it like, would actually <laughs> yeah, but same. I gotta say I'm not there I played around with it and I can't get a fucking thing worth anything out of it and it mm. seems more like uh you're just you know I, I I lean towards the idea that it's just a superfluous tool to make it look like your psychotherapy session is going somewhere that it's not you know that, yeah and it's that like it, seeing... that it has more value uh or that it has more uh empirical evidence to support you know that that uh the reaction is going one way or another than is actually true it could be you know i i mean i also feel like it could be similar to the pendulum trick you know where you have yes. Uh, yes on the top and a no on the bottom and you hold the pendulum and whether it swings up and down where on the yes axis or across on the no axis you have your answer and of course that's just your own I have my pendulum here somewhere. It's fun to play right. with. It, it's the idiomotor effect where um, you will your your body will subconsciously move it to to give you an answer that you mm. think is there or whatever. And the same is true of of Ouija boards and so on. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's exactly that, and I feel like. I feel it's quite possible that that's what the e-meter is too. Like those, uh, those almost imperceptible squeezes you do and things like that are just you betraying what you think the response should be at the e-meter. So, I mean, in that way, it could kind of work, but in a way it's not really supposed to, you yes, know, in a, exactly. in a roundabout way. Yep. Anyways, enough about the e-meters. In any case, they started out doing that. But they did it a lot differently than the Church of Scientology would do it. They broke down those barriers of distinction between auditor and client or whatever the Church of Scientology would call the person being audited, the auditor and audited. 
And they would just do these kinds of back and forth communications and they would follow, you know, the needle of the e-meter to figure out where they needed to go deeper into and explore in, in greater detail. And in that way, they kind of became more uprooted from reality even maybe than the Church of Scientology and went off into different different directions and, and created this whole kind of collective narrative that they were they were building. And de Grimston was clearly a very brilliant man and did a lot of writing that I think has some merit. But when you investigate the process more deeply, you find out that he wasn't really that important to the inner circle of the process church of the final judgment, at least according to... Uh, it was his wife. Uh, right. Yeah, it was. It was yeah. She was definitely the uh the 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 cult mastermind she was the one who would pair people up sexually she was the one who was really dictating uh people's lives to them and by the accounts i've heard from people who were in the process robert de grimston was uh more of a bummer to them kind of a nerd who just did a lot of writing and whether they took his writings terribly seriously or not who knows but in any case I was doing this level of investigation. I started talking to Timothy Wiley, who was, uh, you know, part of the process inner circle, worked with Robert de Grimston, Marianne, went to, went to architecture school with Robert de Grimston, really had uh, uh, some insights as to how things ran on the inside. That said, his he wasn't necessarily the best witness to his own life. You know, he was also part of that whole kind of Timothy Leary uh, psychedelics everyday crowd and very much had a uh, right. supernatural perspective upon the world and um, did believe, I think, in reptilians and David Icke type stuff and things like that. Oh, boy. Yeah, but he was, yeah. a, he was a nice guy. Uh, visited him in his house in, uh, in New Mexico. And it was in investigating the process church of the final judgment that I met William Morrison, who is now head of TST TV, who I've known ever since then has been a close friend of mine. So now we're, we're both doing this whole the satanic temple thing. Yeah. But you only asked one question. It's been this long. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I mean, for something like the Process Church, this level of detail is necessary. A, because people have just... Oh, my cat is pushing the mic. Uh, A, because people have just never heard of the Process. And B, it's a super fucking weird cult. Like, it's, it's a very, very weird like thing phenomenon in the history of new religious movement so yeah no i mean i feel like all of this background is necessary well if you're part of an organization like this it behooves you to know the history of any possible analogous organization right and know yeah which directions you want to take and which directions you don't want to take because at a certain point even if you're the top leader of an organization in a certain sense, you're also a cog in the machine. And there's uh, certain demands that are put upon you by your membership followers or whatever. And if you don't set appropriate expectations up front, or if you uh, make promises you can't deliver on, or if you lock yourself into an unprovable belief system or whatever else, who knows how that plays out for you. Right. And I don't think Robert de Grimston or Marianne, went into what they did with the intention of becoming cult leaders. I think they went in with the opposite intention. So that's why I say when we first started, it was 
uh, more me looking to organizations like the process to figure out what not to do. Mm. And then when we were discussing the symbolism behind the Baphomet monument, that's when you can see a lot of borrowing of process perspectives because you do have all those binary elements on Baphomet. And I do think the strongest message related to Baphomet is the same message that was kind of the core philosophy of the process church of the final judgment, the reconciliation of opposites. And I thought it fit really well with the idea that we were putting a religious monument on public grounds, not to usurp the place of another religion in anybody else's minds, but in order to engage publicly by upholding pluralism and showing that the two can coexist, even if they're, you know, ostensibly diametrically opposed. But we could transcend that and there can be a reconciliation of the opposites. So I have a theory and I want to run it by you because one of the experiences, one of the experiences that I had when I first joined TST was a surprise at the lack of pushback at how, for lack of a better term, Christian I was. I see my, you know, I come from the Christian world. I I did not convert from, you know, I didn't deconvert from Christianity to atheism. I converted from Christianity, like, directly into Satanism. And I took a lot of Christianity with me. And one of the things that appealed to me about TST was that I felt like I could do that. I felt like I could retain a love for the symbol of Jesus, but while rejecting the supernaturalism, while rejecting the unfounded claims, while rejecting the toxicity, the homophobia, the sexism, the transphobia, just all of the bullshit, but take but but that I didn't have to remove the Christianity from myself wholesale. And I think that the reason why I was able to do that is because maybe of the influence of the process church, that this is about the reconciliation of opposites, and that there there is a much greater openness to like dual religious identities within TST. There is a much greater openness towards towards reconciling something like my past in Christianity with my current Satanism and and kind of celebrating both and so feeling perfectly at home in TST as someone who I think culturally is still very Christian, <laughs> you know, and I feel like that that influence, or I feel like that might be due to the influence of the process church. And I I've never felt pressured within TST to be anything other than what I am, which is this weird syncretistic Satanist who has borrowed a lot from Christianity and still really loves a lot of my Christian background. What do you think of that theory? Do you because I don't feel like that would be true in Church of Satan? Well, no, clearly it's not. They're they're uh, they're. As far as I can tell, their only purpose is to advance the idea that they have sole ownership over yes. over Satanism. And I, I honestly don't feel like I'm insulting them by saying that. I honestly feel that that's their, their sole function. Oh, they've, they've said that to me. People, they, have, they have told me, I don't think that's a distortion at all. They have legit yeah. said those words. Right, right. And so I think, I mean, if you have 
if you have nothing else to to do, if you have nothing else to claim for your your activities, I guess that's going to be primary and important. But it's not to us. I feel like we have. Uh, I feel like that's another benefit to us being very active in in the real world uh, to the point that we we don't have to really uh, care that much about you know whether people are looking to us as as the true. I mean, if they want to go to the Church of Satan, go ahead. You know, if they want to go elsewhere, fine. You know, um, really, like if you're not sure about TST, don't don't come. You know, like mm-hmm. we we don't have membership fees. We don't have tithing. We don't have, you know, we don't have this mission to proselytize to people. So to that end, you know, we, we might as well have a membership that uh, fully embraces what we really are and truly understands it. And that will be a more, more of a credit to us than than anything else. But what's kind of remarkable is how we've gotten pushback from the courts for, be, for that kind of openness and how people have tried to use that openness to discredit us as a religion, which we saw during the Scottsdale case. Um, the, the fact that we would accept allies to work with us who weren't, uh, who weren't self-identified Satanists was being used as an argument that, well, maybe none of them are Satanists. Maybe there's no such thing as Satanism, that kind of thing. And I thought it was a really, uh, I thought it was, a really cheap kind of argument it's really really elemental like that's that's like a toddler trick like that that's just a very childish approach to religion don't make me go off on a tangent about what a dickhead that uh, lawyer was in the Scottsdale <laughs> well i i think so i just recently interviewed matt kazaya who's uh, legal counsel for the satanic temple fully knows what a dickhead that guy yeah, was, and, yeah. yes <laughs> i think he alluded some to that in the episode but that guy yeah. was um, that guy was an incredible dickhead. He was like a caricature of a dickhead, like the cartoonish <laughs> dickhead type. It was that's hilarious. Yeah. So so I I definitely see the influence of like the reconciliation of opposites, pluralism, the 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 you know the fact that in the process church there was such emphasis on the reconciliation of opposites and the the veneration of God, Satan, Jehovah, and Lucifer or Jesus? Which was it Lucifer there's Jesus, there's Jehovah, Lucifer and Satan, G- Jesus and Jehovah. And I that really resonated with me when I because I even though I didn't know about the process church and I didn't really know those intellectual underpinnings at the time. One of the things that really connected with me back in 2017 when I was exploring TST and it just clicked was, oh, this I can be the Baphomet. I can contain within my being night and day, light and dark, Christianity and Satanism. And I, I consider well, my... At, at its best, yeah, yeah. At its best, that's what the process was teaching. But there seemed to be oscillation and confusion as to whether they considered themselves, even internally there was this confusion, it seemed, as to whether they were theistic and thought of these entities as literal beings out in the cosmos or... Mm. whether these were different components within each of ourselves, whether we each contained 
or, or if it was both of those things, you know, we contain a Jehovah, a Jesus, a Satan, and a Lucifer, and these are the different components of ourselves that we we need to understand and have sympathy for and balance those things against each other. Like amongst the satanic Luciferian side, you would have your carnal self, that kind of thing. And then, you know, on the Jehovah Jesus side, you'd have your more spiritual self, your more charitable yeah. self. That's yeah, that kind of thing. But there was there was like, but there was constant confusion, is what I'm hearing between whether those were like internal archetypes and kind of a Jungian sense, or if they were actual literal deities out in the universe that had like personalities and stuff. It appears to me that there was that confusion. Okay. There's, I mean, academics always depart on these things, and I've seen other academic writings that seem to take a hard stance on the process being clear about this one way or the other. And I think they're just taking a snapshot in time and they're not realizing how, how iffy that was. How convoluted the process was. Well, and at least over time, I think if you, you know, if you probably went to certain events, certain sermons, looked at certain documents and stuff like that, you'd say they're very clear about what they are, but then you'd see something else that contradicts that later on. Mm. So, yeah, and and you know, just to be clear to to listeners, I I consider you know my my primary religious identity is uh, Satanist right now. But there was like this very fuzzy period in when it was it was almost like I was a planet orbiting two suns, and there it was like one sun was Christianity, and then the was like non theistic Christianity, and then the other sun was Satanism, and it was like you know going back and forth between these two symbolic universes and it was honestly a a kind of really cool mental exercise and in 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 cognitive flexibility and then eventually i realized that no you know my my home really is in satanism but i don't hate my I don't hate my Christian background. I hate the abuses within Christianity. I hate the abuses that come from theocracy, that come from supernaturalism, that come from superstitious belief. I despise all of that. But in a lot of ways, I still love the figure of Jesus, the the myth, depending on which figure, depending on which myth of Jesus. And But also, none of this is to, like, oh, this is what I was going to say. None of this is to discredit the importance of blasphemy as, like, a form of catharsis. Like, I have no problem with, uh, you know, a black mass and desecrating the Eucharist and all that kind of amazing stuff, because that's, like, important to overcome religious trauma. So just for anyone listening who might, who might uh, I don't know, feel judged about their uh, blasphemous practices against Christianity, I think it's totally developmentally appropriate to do those things oh yeah yeah no i yeah me too and like you say it's uh it's lashing out against religious trauma i think exactly people are are doing it right in any case uh it's not necessarily this mean-spirited thing but it's more like uh you know casting out your abuser from your mind and you can do that while still recognizing that other people see it a completely different way and now you're getting a bit too nuanced i think for a lot of the people who protest us and can't, <laughs> can't, can't tolerate hearing yeah. this type of thing well i like i really like what my friend miss ida says she's a, a satanic drag queen and she's one of my best friends and she says blasphemy not blasphemy you 
<laughs> it's bla- it's blasphemy. It is I'm I'm doing blasphemy for my own catharsis. I'm not doing it for anyone else. I'm not doing it to piss anyone off. It is for my own cathartic emotional release. Um and I so I I really like the way she put that. Yeah, we're a long way from that being generally recognized though. And right, even right. even when you uh see some of the uh, treatments of us that are, are inclined to our favor. Uh, sometimes they've tried to whitewash the blasphemous elements from from public view. Like right. uh, when Lisa Ling first did a documentary piece about us for CNN back in, I think, 2016 or something like that on the show, This Is Life. It was It was notable that they edited out some of the blasphemous elements that I think they anticipated the general CNN audience would would find too disturbing. <laughs> so you have a uh, process tattoo and you told me before we started recording that it frequently gets confused for a swastika. Talk about that. I don't think it I don't think it actually honestly ever gets confused for a swastika. I think people are just because... being deliberately uh sorry, go on. Finish, finish what yeah, you were no, going to I, say. No, I, I think that I think that's people, yeah, deliberately trying to misrepresent and, and trying to uh, to cast dispersions. And I mean, if you don't know what a swastika looks like, I doubt you have uh, any right to claim you're for or against it. To be to be honest, yeah, and it's like if, if, if you're it that were a swastika, of history, it would be a very derpy swastika if it was a swastika. It would be like a well, <laughs> in reality, uh, straight from the person who created the symbol, who Timothy Wiley, told me it was four P's overlapping one another, interlocking. So, you know, that's that's the design. It's it's symmetrical with four angles like the uh like the swastika, but there the similarity ends and it's clearly not a swastika. But even in the uh, uh in the Arkansas case where we're putting the uh, where we're fighting to have the Baphomet monument erected on the public grounds because they put a Ten Commandments monument there, their argument against us has gone so far away from the legal argument that they're even trying to make the case about me and trying to make the case that I have a swastika tattoo and that the process tattoo is a swastika tattoo. And I went for depositions two days, seven hours a fucking day. And at one point, this another dickhead lawyer, uh, Mike Cantrell in Arkansas, little fuck that he is, was sitting there asking me about this tattoo, insisting it was a swastika. And I was telling him quite plainly, it is not. Can you not see this tattoo? Do you not understand what a swastika tattoo is? I told him that it's four P's overlapping. I told him that he can look in any book and compare it against a swastika. It's clearly not that in that he was barking up the wrong tree, this asshole lied in a recent motion uh, to the, in the state of Arkansas, and he actually put into this motion that I admitted in deposition that it is swastika. And oh my to God. me, I, I, I feel like, I don't know, maybe we should should motion for sanctions or something like that, because now they're clearly lying to the court, and it's infuriating. Also, you would be the worst neo-Nazi ever. It's like you believe in plurality. 
you you believe in in core liberal principles like free speech and you and you believe in compassion and honoring all people's bodily autonomy like you would just be a really fucking bad neo-nazi i'm I'm also i'm also part jewish the uh ancestry the uh are you really i didn't i didn't know it until more recently until Uh, somebody (laughs) in the family took it oh nice okay cool yeah took the genetic test and (laughs) i mean there you go i well i'm so not a neo-nazi that this was that this kind of meant nothing to me. Like I hear sometimes people take these uh, ancestral tests and they hear that they're, you know, some ethnic mix that they had no idea. And it's a total upheaval to their sense of self. Yeah. I mean, they, they could have told me literally anything. They could have told me I was 80% African and I would have said, oh, okay. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't change who I am. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. Like I, there are people whose whose identity is very rooted in the fact that you know back in the day their ancestors were scottish rapists and pillagers and it's like that really fucking matters to them and then they take a dna test and their entire self-conception is ruined um but okay so speaking of neo-nazis you went on tucker carlson um (laughs) (laughs) so uh this was the third time you were on tucker carlson right or third fourth time yeah third third time right okay so for uh, how from your perspective how did that conversation go so it was about the it was about the after school satan club from your perspective how did how did that conversation go down well it's amazing how many miles of difference light years away a first appearance can be from a third appearance when it comes to national or international televised events like, you know, primetime Fox News. In that the first time I was going to go on Tucker Carlson, I had that anticipation all day long. You typically only find out the day of that you're going to go on. They reach out and there you go. And, you know, you find out around noon and then that evening you'll be in the studio doing your interview. And I didn't know enough about Tucker Carlson. First time I went on, I looked him up and, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot online talking about his actual credibility as a journalist and how he had really ruined people in debates. And he was supposed to be really good at, at just demolishing his opponents to the point that. Now, now this was back, people, this, this was back in like 2016 or 2017, right? When you did it your first like 2018, I think okay. around there, I think. Um, and, and the second time I was on was pretty close on the heels of that one. But, uh, you know, the second time I felt more confident this time, I hardly thought about it at all. You know, I was on my way to the studio and I was doing other things and just thinking I got to get this out of the way. But I was also thinking that this time he just needed to give me the most, most basic opening. And I was going to tear him a new asshole, you know, because he had been such a prick the last time I was on. (laughs) And he, he broke that barrier when at the end of the second uh, interview with me, he just yelled at me that I should go crawl back into my hole. So this time I was thinking like, I am not going to get insulted with, I'm not going to get, be insulted by this guy without answering it, you know? So I was, really ready for the verbal sparring. I was ready for a fight. And I got on and 
there just wasn't the availability for that. I was on so briefly, I thought, you know, we talked a little bit. I pushed him to define what he was talking about at some point, which is when I he was opening the door for getting aggressive at him. And um, he shut it down right away, just kind of thanked me for coming on and called it at that. And I thought, well, this was worth nothing. You know, I, I thought I was really going to get a chance to to go at him. It didn't happen. And I thought, well, it, this isn't going to, you know, this isn't going to get any attention. But this seems to be the one. Uh, maybe people were able to read my mood or attitude or whatever, <laughs> but it seems like people really felt I, I did put him in his place and that, uh, you know, this was definitely how you handle hostile media. And there was even some Reddit group that were, were holding this up. I guess it was the anti-work movement because some of their spokespeople did so poorly. Oh, on, that's right. You know, they had they had their media kerfuffle debacle on Fox yeah, News. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not saying they and I'm not saying they did poorly by my standards. No, 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 no. See, and I'm not I'm not these interviews. And I I'm not criticizing the idea yeah. from a lot of their camp was that their spokespeople had done poorly and they were actually upholding my interview as like emblematic of the way to handle hostile media. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 The the whole anti-work thing is is really interesting. And honestly, the person that Fox News had on from anti-work seemed really cool. Like I would hang out with them. They'd, it was just like not maybe not the best person to appear on Fox News. But yeah, all that aside, it was I, I watched it and I well, was like, you, you, oh, have to, you have to focus on the right message, you know, and you have yes. to know when a message goes wrong, regardless of its merits and what people will take from it, what people distill from sometimes even the right message. And I think at, at their best, that's what they meant by looking to what I do when I go mm. on. Uh, I mean, for instance, like there were ways I could have rebutted certain things Tucker Carlson was saying, but I'm very reticent to go into arguments regarding situations, case studies or whatever that I have no prior knowledge of. And that's what Tucker Carlson was trying to throw at me when I was on his show. And I just said, I don't know what case you're talking about. He was talking about somebody not being allowed to read from the Bible at school or whatever. Oh, which is yeah. A I, topic anyways. I remember that. It, it was so stupid. Clothes. So so right. basically what you're saying is to not take the bait, like to stay on point, to, to just like not let yourself be pushed around or be baited into something where you might, you know, be made to look like an idiot by editing and by the interviewer, in other right. words. Right. This is the essence of the talk I gave with uh, at SatanCon too, which is now available on TST TV. But I was talking about how if you go into a situation like that, uh, there's especially the first time you're going to go on. I wouldn't even wish that upon it. There's, that's an agonizing bit of stress to know that millions of people are going to be watching you that night in front of a hostile interviewer and a mostly hostile regular audience. And it, they're going to be trying to trip you up. And you're only as good as your last performance. And when your performance has that big of an audience, you're unfortunately just not going to live it down if you fuck it up. Like you, you have to know that going in. And all the while, you have to be trying to not get uh, agitated or paranoid about it because that's going to ruin your performance more than anything. If you go in very yeah. nervous. You know? that's, a, that's a very distressing state of mind to be in 
Yeah, like that, yeah. That's very, very, very in, stressful. In all humility, I have to say it takes, I think it takes a lot of self-discipline to be in the right mindset to be able to do that because sure. it takes, it takes focusing on, on, uh, it takes narrowing your focus it, while you have such weight in the background of that focus that you're ignoring, right? You have to ignore the, 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 potential hazards that are very real and very uh, potentially long-term reputationally damaging uh, because, you know, fair or not, you know, that that's it. And you could see uh, Tucker Carlson's tactic the first time I was on, we were talking about the Bell Plain monument, which was a similar argument to the Baphomet monument case where there was a Christian monument on public grounds, so we offered a satanic monument to maintain pluralism. And Tucker Carlson, of course, wanted me on because he wants to stoke outrage amongst his audience that Satanists could have a have a monument on public grounds at all, and who the hell are they? However, I did see about him, which I predicted before I started looking up material, you know, that he would tow the Fox News line that he's really a defender of religious liberty and free speech and that it's the liberals and progressives that are trying to take that away. So I was dedicated to making him, forcing him to reconcile that cognitive dissonance and not being pulled into a trap where I was trying to justify Satanism in all of two minutes, you know, to a Fox News audience. So I took the position that I didn't care what he thought about Satanism. And uh, I mean, this pissed some people off who identified as Satanists within the Satanic Temple because uh, they, I think, had, uh, I don't want to say delusional idea, but I just think the misinformed idea that I would have ever had a chance to truly elaborate upon our beliefs. For instance, Tucker Carlson asked me to explain what the eight pillars of Satanism are, which, you know, <laughs> clearly, yeah, clearly had nothing to do with us and was, uh, you know, a kind of indirect attempt at disparagement already. But I told him that you could look them up. It didn't really matter in this case, though, because the point was, is that we had a right to be there. We have a right to free expression and to express our point of views in that we had a right to the public grounds and the government, no government agency had a right to pick and choose between modes of religious expression. And I had to force him to agree with that, which I think really pissed him off the first time because he ended up having to agree, you know, yes. and, and he started calling into question uh, the numbers. I, you know, he asked how many members the Satanic Temple has. I told him at the time what our what the most accurate estimate was. And then he started saying he didn't believe that at all. And then I said, it doesn't matter. It could exactly. be two of us. And and then he had to agree and say, well, it could be one of you. And so it was well, great. <laughs> and, um, and, we're, yeah. and we're in agreement. So and I found that I found it really refreshing, actually, because, you know, I because that's actually a line that I have taken when it comes to a lot of conversations lately where because I find myself in kind of interfaith situations all the time for me the answer is always well it, it doesn't matter what matters is that the 
the state, the the federal government recognizes us as a religion. That matters, but it also matters that for me in my day-to-day life and my fellow Satanists, we see this and we live it as a religion. And so regardless of whatever definition of religion you have in your head, the fact is we're living it as a religion. It's a religion to me. It really doesn't matter what you think of it. It isn't going to make the reality go away. Right. And if the government didn't recognize us, as it's a, still, it as would still, it, yeah, yeah, that would, would still, still be the case. As Satanists, congregations would still be doing rituals. Where do you categorize that? You know, what, what do you, what do you call it then? I mean, I, I guess then they would just insist that we stop, you know? <laughs> yes. But, yes. Uh, and I, and I don't but, mean but to like it or not, you know, this is where we're at and this is what we're doing. Yeah, exactly. And, um, I, I always just, I find that cognitive dissonance always so interesting how people have such a hard time accepting that Satanists might be real and all of the ways in, and Joseph Laycock says, well, one of the reasons why is because we're politically active. And maybe one of the reasons why Anton LaVey was never really questioned as to whether he was a real religious person or not was, well, he stayed in his place. He stayed in the shadows. He stayed out of politics and social activism. He never asserted himself into the the quote-unquote mainstream the way tst is doing and so it's it's like we can we can accept certain religious identities as long as they stay within their hierarchical place uh does that make sense i mean that that said look at our opposition they Mm. explicitly identify as religious and they make you know great efforts to put people of their religious faith and their deeply held beliefs into offices of political presence to uh, pass legislation that's in line with their religious moral code. And that's just kind of taken as a given, you know, this evangelical movement, nobody questions whether that's actually religious or not. So that's when it becomes more confusing to me. It's like, Mm. Why is it difficult for people to see that, this idea (laughs) that religion isn't politically active, and yet when we do these things in contrast to somebody else doing, you know, uh, know, political religious activities in the name of evangelical theocratic efforts, I I find it bizarre that uh, more people can't accept that, you know, a lot of religions have notions about how in ordered society is is run and develops. And yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Um, I would I would uh, keep going with you, but honestly, daylight savings has completely fucked me up, and I am exhausted. Like, oddly, I've been waking up early, and I was thinking like, oh, it's because of the time change. I'm waking up earlier now, and then I wait a minute, I should be waking up later. <laughs> it be, it's because it's because you're now an old man who uses the word lit and <laughs> to, to try to, you know, fit in with the kids. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, like, like every year I'm like, okay, it's going to hit me really hard. I need to like prepare for this. And then I'm never prepared for it. And it always just completely fucks me up for about a week and a half. And it feels like I'm I have jet lag and it's just one hour. It's just one hour difference. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I'm, 
<laughs> my braid is such a goddamn princess. But anyway, so I'm super tired. I need to head to bed soon. But this has been great, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Great. Thank you so much. All right. That is it for this show. The theme song is Wild by 11D7. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons. And it is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>